0: Welcome back to Trademark Property Company's podcast, Leaning In. This is the second part of an episode, and you can find part one on the podcast page. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we wrap up our discussion with my friend, Dr. Peter Lenneman, principal of Lenneman Associates, about the economy and his predictions for the rest of the year. He shares advice on how companies can face the current uncertainty and challenges head-on in the current market, and how the results of this fall's midterm elections could change the state of the economy. Just share your thoughts about the retail real estate market, what you see on the horizon that might have an impact and the supply and demand. We, people don't talk enough, I don't think, about the supply and demand, how we've, net, we've delivered virtually zero. It's supply. probably negative. Yeah, I know we're not delivering much net new supply, and, but there's still retailers expanding, et cetera. So give us your thoughts on the retail real estate business.
1: So my on retail hasn't really changed. I've always liked good retail. What do I mean by good retail? Good location, not oversupplied, good design, ingress, egress, good neighborhood dynamics, all those kind of things. I've always liked that, and I've never liked a good location but you can't get in and out of it because of ingress-egress or the design is bad or the neighborhood is not good or it's been cut off, right, by another center that came in and was even in a better place. So I've always liked good retail, never liked bad retail. The problem with bad retail is that you can't just buy it cheaply enough to change the price of Cheerios. And if you can't change the price, you can't change shopping patterns and retail is about shopping patterns. So you pretty much have to accept shopping patterns. Now you can bring in new tenants. That's an important thing, right? You can try to retenant and hope you have good in- or improve your ingress, egress or your design and so forth. But that's, about good retail. Now, the best news that happened during the pandemic for retail is it proved that you cannot sell groceries profitably online. And if you go back to 2019, there were people like me saying that, and everybody disbelieved me. Everybody, except the people at Amazon, and Walmart, they believed me, but they didn't want to admit it because hope sprang of turmoil. Well, the pandemic proved you cannot sell groceries profitably online. And if you think about it, what, two years ago, all you heard was how great online groceries is doing. They sold a lot. They lost a staggering amount of money. Everybody lost money doing it. And the momentum, is a little like driverless cars. You notice how the momentum of driverless cars has Slow. disappeared. Yeah, And similarly with online groceries. And the reason I pick on groceries is it is such a critical part of so many retail centers. When you go beyond groceries, the same thing is true of a lot of items, which is you can sell them online, you just can't sell them profitably. And it's a dirty secret in the online retail sector that that's more or less true. The pandemic kind of showed it to be true. What we found is that people like to shop online somewhat, But it's not all that profitable. And the other thing we found was you saw it in your centers. When you were able to open your centers, people came back because it was fun. It was fun. Is every moment of shopping in person fun? Of course not. Is it fun for everybody? Of course not. But for a lot of people, it is. I feel good about retail. Now, the problem with retail, good retail, is since it's about satisfying consumer tastes, think about that, it is about nothing except satisfying, ever-changing consumer tastes. What an awful business. Your business is to satisfy ever-changing consumer tastes and all kinds of items. Well, that's a hand-to-hand combat industry. Because a retailer figures it out, you get them. And then just about as you've got them, the customer's tastes have changed and they've moved on. So it's always a hand-over-hand combat sector. Always has been, always will, because you're in the business of satisfying consumer tastes.
0: Do you have anything to add on the future of shopping malls? Or is that not something you really focus on?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, again, good malls, they're going to do well. I think Simon just reported their numbers last week, and they were record highs. They did terrific. A good mall is where people want to go. And the job of the mall owner is to constantly figure out, oh, they want this now, not that. And if you went to the shopping shopping mall 40 years ago, It looks nothing like the shopping mall of 20 years ago in terms of tenancy, which looks nothing like the shopping mall of today in terms of tenancy. But they're doing record sales at the good malls. And the bad malls, when I say bad, I mean, they were cut off by a Walmart. They were undersized they don't have good ingress, egress. they don't have space to expand, or they have too much space. Those are a challenge. They're the ones that get all the news. It's interesting. How many articles have you read about one of the top performing centers in the country, but like Short Hills Mall? Yeah. And, or uh,
0: North Park down here, Houston Galleria.
1: You don't read the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times about how great they're doing. What do you read about? You can probably name the center that $125 in sales. And you're going, well, that center shouldn't exist. That's the one they write about.
0: What you really said, what I heard, is consistently across the board, good retail has a future. Bad retail doesn't. Good retailers have a future. <laughs> Bad retailers don't. And so that's why we focus on top grading and working on the, the retail that has good location, good demographics, et cetera, like you said.
1: Some things are amazingly easy intellectually. Now, to do what you just said is a lot of work, hard work, right? I'm not saying it's easy work. Hand-to-hand that all the time. But intellectually, it's not hard. You just want to be where people are and want to shop. And it's easy for them to get in and out. And then you have the design and flexibility that can constantly serve up to them whatever they want, even though they don't know what they're going to want three years from now. The beauty of supermarkets is that I do know they're going to eat.
0: No doubt. We say in in the retail Business, it's evolve or die. <laughs> and because one thing's for sure, the the tastes and desires of the consumer will change. And if we don't change with it, we will die.
1: And you deserve to. If you think about it, you deserve to because you said you want to be in a business that services ever-changing consumer tastes. And if you're not willing or able to do that, you should die. It's like saying, I want to be a uh, middle linebacker in the NFL. I just don't want to hit or be yeah. hit. That's not what you signed up for. That's
0: you right. Know? And Peter, it's one reason we have found transitioning our business into developing multifamily, that that's been pretty comfortable and relatively easy is because it's, we're meeting consumer needs. We've, it's different. If we went into industrial, you're meeting big corporations' needs. Whether it's multifamily or it's a retail center, you're meeting consumers' needs. That's just in our DNA. And think about we've been in the mixed-use business, and which you're not that big fan of. You've told me a few times. But in the mixed-use business, multifamily is in virtually every mixed-use project. Industrial is not in any of those. And so it's, it's been a, a reasonably uh, easy transition for us. The,
1: the thing about that's difficult, we've talked about it, about mixed-use is... It's the perfect time for multifamily, but no retailers are committing at this moment or vice versa. I've got the retailer who wants to be there, but the market for multifamily is not quite right.
0: Yeah, it is a timing challenge for sure.
1: It's a timing challenge. And especially when it gets dense enough, you have to do structured parking such that the economics of carry become notable. It's not like I don't get the idea of mixed use being wonderful. It's the timing issue.
0: Yeah, what, and you, So you're basically outlining, it's hard. Mixed it's use hard. is hard. That's a built-in supply constraint. So a lot of people don't want to mess with it. So uh, one reason I like it. What is your advice for companies like Trademark as we face these really uncertain, challenging times, things like tighter capital markets, tightening spreads on, like, on multifamily development, high construction prices, you're building multifamily at the same price as people are exiting. What are some of your thoughts and some of your advice for companies like ours?
1: Number one advice I kind of gave, which is avoid being fixated by the shiny objects. Second is that in periods where construction costs have been high, and you look at it as a hold phenomena as opposed to a flip phenomena, generally you get that back over some time period in the form of higher rents, higher value. And the reason is because things happen for a purpose. There's a reason construction costs are up. The economy is good, this and that. Don't you wish you could have the economy hot, demand hot, and construction costs low? Of course, but that's not kind of the way the world works.
0: Yeah, and I would I comment one thing about this cycle you mentioned earlier, the pandemic and supply chain. The thing that concerns me, though, is, is this potentially temporary supply chain and pandemic induced supply chain dysfunction is it loosens up and goes away. Might we price our construction today. And then a year later, supply chain calms and construction prices are down 20%. And then the next, a year later, the next guy actually delivers cheaper than we did. That's a, a little knot in my stomach. What, to, what do you say to that?
1: So yes, and it should be. And then I go back Terry, to these studies I did about 10 year holds and three year holds of institutional properties Three-year hold, it should not only make knots in your stomach, it should make you buy some Pepto-Bismol. It's like, oh my God, my stomach is really bad. On the other hand, the interesting phenomenon is over a 10-year period, it doesn't matter much whether you go in at a high or a low. Because there's so much that happens in between and how you take advantage of that sort of swamps. Now, my colleague Jeremy Siegel at Wharton has written these series of books called Stocks for the Long Run. One of the things Jeremy points out or finds is that even if you bought stocks right before they fell in a big market adjustment, kind of 10, 20% market sell-offs, you did just fine over a 10-year period almost every 10-year period. And that's sort of what I found with real estate, is if it's good real estate, not over levered, so you're not going to lose it. There's so many other things that happen. Let's go back. Suppose you would be in this situation, everything you just said was true, In late 2007, early 2008, let's do it with apartments, okay, to keep it mark-to-market rents. That's all I'm doing apartments for. And everything you said was potentially true in 2007, 2008, and you built it or you bought it. And then you go, oh, my God. By 2009, values were down, rents were down. What an idiot I am. Kind of, what an idiot I am. And then you go, well, come back in 2017 and 2018. And that was a horrible downturn. Right after you built it or bought it, you would agree. I mean, if you build it in, imagine it was finished in the first quarter of 2008. You couldn't have timed it much worse. And construction costs fell, values fell, rents fell, occupancy fell. But if you came back in the first quarter of 2018, you would made a lot of money. It's not unique to that 10-year period of time. Things balance out. Yes, you had a difficult year. Yes, you go, what an idiot am I. And if you'd have had to sell in two years, you would have been an idiot, so to speak. But time allows markets to adjust. And that would be a big thing I'd point out to remember. Time allows markets to adjust.
0: That's a great one to remember. I know a lot of people build multifamily and forecast selling in three years. And so if you don't hit it just right, it can be killer. But if you have a uh, capital stack and a forecast that is six, seven, eight, nine years, 10 years, and it works, Your odds are much higher of succeeding. That makes it
1: it such that you're around as the owner when that time comes.
0: Don't over leverage. So we're heading into midterm elections this fall. Do you have any thoughts on what the different results might mean for the economy?
1: Well, I think if the Democrats really prevailed and got a clear, like a three seat majority in the Senate, and maintain their majority in the House, you would get more. I think you'd get another green act, probably even more creatively named than the Inflation Reduction Act.
0: That's my next question. So you can go ahead and work that in because it was uh, your thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on our economy.
1: All these bills are usually crazy named, but when I saw it named the Inflation Reduction Act, I thought I should change Lineman Letters' name to I'm Never Wrong. Yeah. It has about the equal degree of truth in advertising. But I think if the Democrats, won, kept the House and won a three-senator margin in, in the Senate, you would see a lot more green legislation. They would probably go back and try to do a major tax bill a major tax bill. If the Republicans take the Senate and House, neither of those will happen. But you also won't get a reversal to speak of because it won't be signed. It'll get vetoed. Those areas would get vetoed. And if you get a split where you get Republicans in one and... Democrats and the other, I think it's not a lot different than what happens if the Republicans take both houses in terms of the economics. Now, I think on things like investigating Hunter Biden, I'm not a political maven, but I would think it's a safe prediction that there'll be, if the Republicans took the House and Senate, there would be And a hearing, investigation, et cetera, et cetera, that they would conduct on that prior to the presidential election. You get a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: Do you have any comments on the impact on the Inflation Reduction Act on our economy?
1: Well, it will be second order. It will benefit. It's really politics at its norm, I mean that political activity is much more about what is good for supporters than it is what is good for the economy. This is true whether it's Democrats or Republicans. So that bill will be very good for firms doing some of the environmental stuff. Will it have any impact on inflation? Of course not. Not really. Will it have any effect on the environment between now and 2030? Based on the models that I've seen of it, these are not my models, the answer is, of course not. And the reason, of course not, is how can it, given that it's one country in a world where China and India and others are creating... Us doing, quote, something is so small that in terms of actually impacting the climate, it's got to be very close to zero. I saw a couple of estimates that put it like five decimal points of a degree, and that's assuming everything goes so but it will favor certain industry sectors and if you think about politics over your life it is much more about i favor this sector defense i favor fossil fuels i favor finance i favor you know than it is the well-being of the economy
0: yeah or i disfavor (laughs)
1: disfavor. that's
0: what it is really now exactly they, they disfavor fossil fuels and so these This act is a partial rejection of a reaction to. Peter, anything else you want to share with me and my listeners? Anything that I missed? Anything new going on that you want to share with us?
1: Well, I have something I think is new and cool. My new book, which the lead author is Mike Royson of Cleveland Clinic and co-authored with also Albert Ratner of Forest City. And it's called The Great Age Reboot. National Geographic is our publisher. It comes out in about three weeks or so. You can pre-order it on Amazon. And it is really about all of the genetic, all of the breakthrough studies that are being done that really are going to reboot our ages, that promise, hold the hope that 90 becomes the new fifty and that we not only live longer, but we live massively reinvigorated lives.
0: We live better, yeah.
1: And longer and better, we'll therefore work longer, we'll be more productive. Imagine if you live 20 healthy, really robust healthy years like you are right now. Imagine you get 20 more of those than you anticipate. You'll work at least five of those that would increase your lifetime output by something like 15%. We're living 20 more years or 30 more years in our best health. What that promises for the economy you need a lot more apartments, you need a lot more shopping going through your shopping centers, you need a lot more boxes going through warehouses, You need uh, more hotels for people to enjoy. Senior housing. If 90 is the new 50, you don't see a lot of 50-year-olds moving into senior housing. You can go on and on. And so it's very exciting. It's designed for people like you and your listeners. We lay out a lot of the stuff that's happening in genetics. I never thought I would read this much but I think it's explained so that people really can grasp the things that are going on and how they're going on. The fact that we would be healthier and more productive just not only if we get more time with our loved ones and to help others, but that we can solve huge amount of our medical problems. We spend 14% of GDP, 14% on chronic diseases, like high blood pressure and diabetes and so forth. These breakthroughs could easily cut that in half. Well, that's a billion and a half dollars.
0: Well, that's exciting. I look forward to reading that. And I, as always, thank you for your time, Peter. And I look forward to doing this 20, 30, 40 years from now with you. 50, 50. (laughs) You got it, cheers. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss one. To learn more about Trademark Property Company, visit TrademarkProperty.com.